we've continued this series, which seems to have been going on forever, uh, called Becoming, as we've been looking at various uh, practices and ways in which we can surrender our lives to God and to find ourselves and find who God really made us and that we would become more like Jesus. And so last week we talked about silence and solitude and uh, I took some time and we looked at five separate passages from the scriptures as to how, how and when Jesus uh, spent time alone with the Father, what went on, what was the purpose, and, uh, and then so encouraged us to be spending some time in our own lives in silence and in solitude. And I wonder how you've been getting on. Cool, that's responsive. My goodness me. In all seriousness, I would really love to know, you know, if this is something that you have had a go at or you've been regularly practicing, I'd really, really love to know uh, your experience of it. Um, so this week, I really kind of want to follow on uh, with this and, uh, and spend a bit more time just camping out on it. Why? Because I think it's an incredibly important practice and discipline for each one of us. Because at the end of the day, strip it all away, put it all apart, when it's me, myself, and I, it's me, myself, and I, and him. When everyone is gone, when the music fades, when we're alone, it's, it's us and him. And it's often in those places where God can do the deepest thing. And that's what I want to speak about uh, this morning. I want to talk about the importance of the wilderness and how God uses it to shape us and shape our lives. And when you think of the wilderness, I wonder what kind of images or thoughts kind of conjure up within your minds. Uh, potentially, it could be the landscape and scenery of the wild place. It could be that in that place, it's a hostile environment, a dangerous environment, a place of excitement. Um, it's usually a place that lacks the modern comforts of uh, what we're used to. Um, it could be a place where you do, where you are alone, where you're away from it all, the hustle and bustle of life. And uh, sometimes the wilderness uh, creates space and time where we feel that we're out of our comfort zone. For many of us, we're drawn to the wilderness. We like the wild place. We like a lot of the things that we've described. And we're drawn and we long to get there, physically speaking. And for others... It's a, such a place that we're so fearful of going there that there's a reluctance of actually going there. And this is in the natural sense, but it's also in the spiritual sense too. And I want to use the physical and the spiritual to kind of create some kind of analogy for us to understand the importance of the wild place, the wilderness, alone with God and what God can do with us there. The Bible is full of examples of where individual characters throughout the scriptures encountered God in the wild. If we think about Moses, Moses um, uh, with his privileged upbringing uh, and background, uh, you know, he murders someone and he runs away for fear of the repercussions to him. Where does he go? He goes to the wild place. And for years he runs away from uh, his true calling and what God had for him, and eventually, eventually, in the wild place, God speaks to him through a burning bush. 
Think of the people of Israel. No sooner have they left Egypt, a couple of days later, they're in the wild place. They're in the wilderness, and they're already moaning, groaning, thinking, oh, flip, take us back there. It was so much better in that place. And it's, they spent years and years and years in the wilderness where God ministers and speaks and leads in that place. Think about Joseph. Joseph, this arrogant young man, age of 17, has an incredible call on his life. He's the special one. It takes 13 years of humbling before the Lord. It requires a lot of time um, spent in silence and solitude, away from what he knows, away from his family, who were the ones who obviously sent him away. And in that time and in that place, God humbles him and restores him and speaks tenderly to him and prepares him for what is to come. You see, many of us, we don't like the wilderness. We run away from it. But actually, it's a really good place if we would embrace it. I know for some of you, right now, you're experiencing what you could describe as the wilderness. You found yourself in life in a place that you hadn't quite uh, planned on, anticipated upon. You're in a time, in a season, where you're having to deal with some unpleasant things. Maybe things of the past of resurfacing. Maybe there are things right now that have just presented themselves to you. And God is inviting you to lean in to him in this season. Don't despise what's happening. I love one of, one of the favorite verses in the Bible is, for me, is from a, a, a small prophet, small prophet, wasn't short, uh, called Hosea. Hosea is just this incredible story. Uh, very, very briefly, uh, God invites uh, Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman. What an interesting thing. Uh, and through that marriage, through that analogy, it was an analogy of of how God would uh, speak and lead and have relationship with the people of Israel through this prophet's life with uh, Hosea's wife. And she is unfaithful and they have children together and the story unfolds and unpacks. And then these brilliant verse, I think it's already come up because you're glancing that direction already, um, is this majestic verse where God speaks and says, therefore I am now going to allure her. What a great word, allure. How would you pronounce that? Would you pronounce it like that, wouldn't you? Allure. I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. The wild place, literally, spiritually, are places of encounter. They're places and times of life change if we embrace them. If we choose to embrace what God wants to do in that time. I want to look um, at a passage uh, from 1 Kings 19. We'll come to it in a minute, not just yet, if we can. Let's set some context to it. Some of you will know this story really well. Um, 1 Kings kind of 17, 18. It's during a season, during a period of Israel's history 
where we've got a bit of a bad egg uh, in the king Ahab who's leading the people. He's married to a really bad egg named Jezebel and that she's influenced the king in a really bad way and she has uh, steered the people of Israel away from Yahweh who is their God and steered them towards the foreign gods of the Baals and the Asherah and the prophets are the people there who are leading the people and leading the people astray from Yahweh and Elijah is faithful, is faithful to God along with other prophets trying to lead the people of Israel into the uh, relationship with God and uh, in 1 Kings 18 we read the story very well known story where they have um, a bull off they have a, uh, they, they take two bulls and they say okay the prophets of Baal 450 of them you're gonna well, you, you choose this bull and Elijah on his own has this bull and the idea is they set them up on these altars and they're gonna light them up well, they're not going to light them up. They're going to ask their God to come and to light them up. And 450 prophets of Baal try really desperately hard to call upon their God and say, come and take this sacrifice, take this offering, this cut up animal, this bull, and nothing happens. It just lays there. And we know the story. Elijah, in total, asks for 12 large jars of water to be poured and doused upon his sacrifice, the, uh, the bull, and then eventually calls upon Yahweh, says, God, come and accept this sacrifice. And the bull is set alight. As a result, the prophets of Baal are slaughtered and they are put to death. And Ahab, who's the king, tells his wife Jezebel what's happened. Jezebel is really, really unhappy and she threatens to kill Elijah for what he has done. And that's where we pick up the story. Are we ready? There's quite a lot of words. I'm not good at this bit. I would switch off. I usually say that. Switch on the brain. Do that. Ross, do that to Caroline. She just needs a little bit there, right there. And anyone else just need a little bit of there? Concentrate. Here we go. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. 
There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord of God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Hang in there. We're a few verses still. Keep going. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mountain, the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with a sword and I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. It's like Groundhog Day. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehua, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from abel to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu, is that okay? We'll go with that. We'll be will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Take a couple of deep breaths. We're there. This story displays lots of what I think many of us experience. And I want us to look at this and see what is it that we can learn from this one story? What is it that's going to be extremely helpful for us? First of all, Elijah is forced into silence and solitude. He goes there. See, last week we spoke about Jesus. Jesus chose to enter into silence and solitude. He chose to wake up early one morning and go and be with the Father. He chose in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before death, to spend time with God. He chose it. It was a voluntary thing. Whereas with this, Elijah has no intention to go before the Lord in terms of spending some silence and solitude. He's forced into the wilderness. And in that place... He wants to die. Now, he says this, I've had enough, take my life. What extreme measures, and I hope none of us ever have to face or even have those kind of thoughts, although I'm sure some will. In that extreme place, as he runs away, as he walks into the wilderness place, God still meets with him and tends to him. We read that he leaves his servant behind and he goes a day's walk. And in that place, he sits beneath a broom bush 
and falls asleep. And God sends an angel to tend to him and wakes him up with bread and water and says, eat this. And then he falls asleep. A second time occurs. He wakes and he has something else to eat and something else to drink and falls asleep again. The angel says, you must eat and drink. The journey is too much for you. Let's try and understand the context of where Elijah's come from. Elijah is the only one and has gone up against 450 prophets of Baal. He has been faithful to the Lord and has ministered before the Lord. He has done everything that was asked of him. An incredible um, victory has occurred. The prophets of Baal are slaughtered and it paves the way for God's people to rule and reign again. But he is terrified of his own life. Fear has so gripped his heart because of the threat of Jezebel and Jezebel's servants coming to kill and to take his own life. And because of fear, he runs away. And so many of us in our lives, we run away from the very things that God has for us because of fear. Fear comes from the enemy. Enemy will send fear of all shapes and sizes and all kinds of things, some real and some that are not real and are irrational and were around in our minds and in our, uh, in our thinking. Fear comes and we run for the hills and we run away and we run into the wild place. And this is what's taken place here with Elijah. This is what's happened. This is where he finds himself, a day's walk He is exhausted. He is spent. And the most beautiful thing is this, that in that place, God ministers to him. He ministers to him physically and tends to his physical needs by providing food and water. In that place, he falls asleep. Last week, I mentioned this. I said, you know, as we enter into science and solitude, for some of us, We might just become so still that we might just fall asleep. And that's okay to do that. That's probably the most spiritual thing that you could actually do in science and solitude because we're so tired is fall asleep. I want to introduce to you, this is um, Holly, who is uh, Gillian and Alan's daughter. And uh, why don't you just turn around and face the front there. I wonder if you can read that on her jumper. Jesus took naps. Be like Jesus. Thank you very much indeed. So many of you came up to me last week and and jokingly, Flip, it's okay to do that? Of course that's okay. And actually for many of us, especially this season, some of you are on your hands and knees. I look around, I see some teachers amongst us and maybe some other. You are just desperate to get to Friday. Desperate. For a break. Elijah has gone with no intention other than to die, but God in his grace and his mercy ministers to his physical needs. In the place of silence and solitude, as we're in the um, place of wilderness, will we allow God to minister to us? I often reflect on a Sunday morning after the service and kind of 
reflect and see what the Lord was doing. And very often, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I feel like God, God's in the room and he's in the room to minister to us. And, uh, and, and I love it. I just love it when, when God speaks to you, speaks to us individually, speaks deeply and personally, and you respond to him and you allow God to minister to you through the person of the Holy Spirit and you go away encouraged and you go away changed. And I love that. And I encourage all of us that we would posture our lives and our hearts in such a way as we would allow him to minister to us. You see, we're so good at trying to do it for ourselves, aren't we? Oh, yeah, I did it my way. I'm all right, Jack. No, we need to surrender our lives and allow him to minister to us. In this place of wilderness, Elijah um, is ministered to and inner work is required. After being strengthened initially, God revives him and Elijah embarks on a 40-day journey when he eventually reaches Mount Horeb and in that place, the mountain of God, he sleeps in a cave. It's at this very point where God speaks to him saying, what are you doing here? And he replies, I've been very zealous for you. The people are trying to kill us prophets. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. Having entered into the wild place, or it could be the time of silence and solitude, it is likely that you'll feel nothing. You might experience nothing, but remember this, that silence and solitude, the practice of it, it's not a magic formula. It's not the holy grail, the be all and end all, but it is a posture of surrender. It's a place where we simply say, it is me and you alone, nothing, no distractions, no one else, here I am. In this place, in this time, God speaks a second time, says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? It could be as we enter into the wild place, into the silence and solitude, God might say, how did you get here? What would you like me to do for you? What is it that you need as he has allured you and is now at the place where he's speaking tenderly to you? The other thing is this, in Elijah's response to God, he says, I'm the only one. And I think often when we're in the wilderness, we feel like we're the only one. No one else understands. No one else knows what's really going on. I'm the only one. And there can be that feeling. The other thing is, this silence and solitude is that you're the only one. And you're meant to be the only one with him in that time and in that place. God invites Elijah into a deeper place of relationship and intimacy. When Elijah is in that place, even though, remind ourselves, he did not choose to go there, he chose to go and die. But God 
in his grace and mercy ministered to him. You see, very often when we're encountered with these times and places, we can think, what on earth are you doing, God? God, most often or not, doesn't create the situation, but it's in the situation that he can minister deeply to us. God speaks to Elijah when he's in the cave and he says, uh, come out, come out of the shelter and stand out on the mountain of the Lord in the presence of God. In the wild place is always a place of encounter. Why? Because in the wild place is always his presence. And we could be feeling, we could be thinking like, I'm in this place and I feel nothing and I hear nothing. But it is the place of encounter and it is the place of his presence. God invites Elijah out of the cave. He's going to pass by on the mountain. What then unfolds is incredible. Three physical things take place. We have the wind that shatters rocks. It is quickly followed by an earthquake and then is followed by fire. And each time we read that God wasn't in the wind, God wasn't in the earthquake, God wasn't in the fire. We can assume that God sent those things, by the way. And I think what it's meaning here is God didn't speak through those things. I am sure God got a hold of his attention through those three physical things. But it's afterwards which we learn and what we read. After the fire came a gentle whisper. How come, how come God didn't speak through the fire like he spoke to Moses through a fire, through a burning bush? How calm it wasn't through the earthquake? How calm it wasn't through the wind and shattering rocks? We don't know this for sure, but we could present this as an assumption or a maybe. God speaks through the gentle whisper because he's inviting us into intimacy with him. I am going to allure her, going to draw her out and speak tenderly to her. For Elijah, it wasn't through those three things. It was through the still, small voice. To hear a still, small voice, we have to come closer. And we're in the wild place God is inviting us to draw near to him that we might hear his still, small voice. Over many years, I've seen many people I know experience the wilderness, hard times, situations. I've, uh, I've seen friends, I've seen people that we've led um, experience and encounter all manner of different things. And one thing that I've noticed is this. They either use that place and that time and that season 
as a time that they draw closer to God or it's a time when they go further away from God. I've heard it said by someone else, we can either use or respond to times in our lives like this that will make us bitter or better. And the only difference is the posture of our hearts. It's how we respond. We either choose to come closer to God, strengthened and encouraged, listening and allowing him to minister to us, leading us and speaking to us. And God does the most deeply profound inner work in our lives, or we run away and we choose to do whatever we want to do. And it usually doesn't end very well. We're coming into land. God does speak to Elijah and he gives him direction. Second time, he asks him, what are you doing here? Second time, he gives the exact same answer. And God tells Elijah, go back the way you came. And he gives him instructions of who to anoint, which leaders he should appoint that should lead the people of Israel towards relationship with God. He gives him some answers. He gives him a roadmap for what's ahead. Very often when it comes to science and solitude, God will speak to us. Again, it's not the magic equation. But like with Jesus, when Jesus spent time with the Father, he comes back down from the mountain and he appoints the 12 apostles. He comes back down from having spent time with God, says, we need to go from this place and we need to go to these other villages as well. How do we know that? Because the Father would have given him instructions and given him direction. Very often in the wild place, the place of isolation where we're stripped bare of all that we know and all that we trust, as we're away from the noise and the distraction of people and our smartphones and our everything else, God speaks tenderly and says, go here. I hope that over the last couple of weeks, it's just given us a bit of a roadmap for this kind of stuff, but also just the encouragement to take some time to actually practice it two minutes of a reminder of how to practice it. And again, this is not a formula. This is just a little bit of a framework. To enter into a time of silence and solitude, it's really helpful to have a place. It could be the forest, walking the dog. It could be your bedroom. It could be a whole manner of different places. Selecting a time when it's going to work for you and potentially selecting a time that you're going to spend in silence and solitude. And I keep saying two minutes. Two minutes saying and doing nothing is an eternity. Have a go at it. Have a go. You see if you can spend two minutes doing nothing, saying nothing, trying to think of nothing. Posture yourselves physically and spiritually speaking in such a way 
as you are saying, you can have me. I surrender myself to you. And then, fourthly, it's just a very simple prayer that says, God, here I am. In life group, uh, we were talking about this just a couple of weeks ago, and I need to credit Paul Jervis, because he asked me to. Um, he said, you know, often whenever we enter into a time of silence and solitude, when we eventually come to the place and we still ourselves, our brain is just whirring with all kinds of stuff and information, and it takes us a long while to actually settle. And he said this, it is very good, by the way. He said it's a bit like the old modems. You know, we're all used to the Wi-Fi stuff now, but you remember the old dial-ups? And you'd click online and, and it, would go, it would have, I'm just going to try and mimic it, I won't. But you know the, you know the, the noise that it kind of makes as it kind of dials the whatever it was and all this. And then eventually, you got through and you are connected. That's a great analogy, Paul. As we still ourselves and we allow the busyness and the craziness of our lives aside, stillness comes and we get connected 